Welcome to Reckoning. My name is Ingrid, and I'm starting this podcast to share open and honest discussions about our experiences with death. I'm hoping that as a culture, we can grow to talk about it without it being feared as a heavy, scary, and overwhelming topic. Let's talk about it more, get a little more comfortable with it, wrestle and wonder and ask questions. Let's reckon with it. We all have to deal with this aspect of life. We will lose everyone we know, and we ourselves will die. So how can we face this reality with eyes more open, with some grace, humility, understanding, and even appreciation? How can we embrace this aspect of being a human and use it as a way to grow, learn, and expand? The goal of this podcast is to turn toward these shared experiences, using our stories and collective wisdom to gain some courage and strength and skill to face it. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to and have these conversations with me. Thanks for being willing to reckon with the topic of death and dying. yourself. My name is Anthony DiLorenzo and I have primarily been keeping busy by doing some volunteer work farming and uh, have a photography portrait project that I'm working on. I'm a brilliant photographer. (laughs) Awesome. I would like to start by asking you, have you lost someone close to you and who was it and what was their relationship to you? Sure. The main person that comes to mind is my uncle. So yeah, my uncle's name was Mark, and we were, I would say we were really close. We saw each other at least several times a year more recently, but when I was younger, we would see each other every few weeks Mm -hmm. um, and would have big extended family gatherings all the time and he was always the first person to come and the last person to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I spent a lot of time with him growing up. And he's not, is he on your mom's side or your dad's side of the family? My dad's side of the family. Is that the Italian side? Both sides are Italian. Both sides. Yeah. Okay, everybody's Italian. So that's the naval <laughs> side of the family. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Great. And what was your, what was the tone of your particular relationship with him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, he's, you know, he's a funny guy. He, um, as much as I started this by talking about how he went to an effort of drawing people together, in a lot of ways he could be pretty, um, he could be pretty abrasive. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he could just be bossy. <laughs> okay. And he, 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 I don't think he realized it, but he could really, uh, he spent a lot of time telling other people what to do and mm-hmm. the, just like these very small favors of, oh, I'm done with my plate. Could you go put it away for me? Or, oh, while you're already up, would you give me a beer? So that was a really common theme for mm-hmm. him and a lot of his nephews and nieces. Mm-hmm. So mine, mine fell right into stride with that. Uh, I, th- I would say that as I started getting older, uh, when he would... 
try our patience. I would take more of an initiative to try to, rather than just react, have more of a conversation with them and be like, mm-hmm. yeah, just to engage, engage with, be more engaging. And so I think that was something that stood out in our relationship in a family that typically just very, very candidly goes to anger and expresses that rather than diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which would be stereotypical, but maybe true of Italians. Of Italians. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which the flip side of that is perhaps someone, it sounds like, who's full of character and yeah. very colorful mm-hmm. and very vibrant and lively. Yeah. So. I mean, that's the thing is that we, it's funny that we're doing this interview right now because just this last weekend, I was telling you, we all had winemaking, right? We did wine, we did the annual winemaking gathering and um, he was the one of a number of people who weren't there, but he was the one person who we stopped in the middle of the event to say, like, let's all acknowledge that Mark couldn't make it this year. Mm. And so, yeah, it was he was a pretty common person to, if you had a friend at one of these family reunions, they meet a few dozen people, but Mark was always the person they remembered. Mm. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. So how, how did he pass and... and... Were you with him when that happened, or what do you know about that? Yeah, so he died from suicide. He um, he left a note that said that he was having a hard time enjoying his life because his arthritis had gotten so bad mm-hmm. that he was he was a really big biker. It was a really big point of pride that um, he didn't buy a car until pretty late in his life, mm-hmm. and he biked everywhere. So his arthritis had gotten bad enough that it was hard for him to even do that. And so that was what his note said. Um, it didn't say anything about depression or isolation or loneliness or lack of meaning in life or anything like that. But I think that a number of us, and I don't know if this is necessarily true, but I think some of us have, sus- have suspected that there's more than just pain. There probably was, you know, some sort of either mental illness or depression or something that was going on mm-hmm. um, if it would have brought him to the point of taking his life mm-hmm. yeah how did you find out so i found out because my sister called me i don't remember the exact order of who told who but my sister found out before me and called me on the phone when i was at work one day mm-hmm. and so um yeah i just uh, it was a really short conversation and i think it was pretty much just she started crying and said mark mark's mark is dead mm-hmm and I think I reacted kind of like, I think I just said, oh, I remember being, almost like, I, re, I don't remember the words, but I remember almost having this attitude of like irritation, almost like inconvenience, you know? Like, well, God, of course he is. Like, you know, along with, along with everything else that's happening this year. Mm. Now, of course, that I have an uncle who's just died from a suicide. Mm. Um, and so, I, yeah, that was my first reaction to mm. finding out. Which is entirely human. Right. Right? Right. I've never really had like a critique of that, but it's it's interesting to look at it because I was right by my boss in the same room during the phone call mm-hmm. and he was being especially cautious and careful and asking if I wanted to go home and seeing if I was okay and if I wanted to modify my what I was working on. And, and I just said like, I'm doing great. Like, I just keep going. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really sad. I'll connect with my family later. Um, mm-hmm. And I, yeah, worked the rest of the shift, felt totally fine, didn't even feel like anything was different and mm-hmm. it took, took a couple of days before it sunk in okay yeah and then how did that shift was there a moment or was it a slow change or did yeah was there a change in that? yeah I, I i guess i do specifically remember at one point walking to work one day passing through playground and just starting crying and mm-hmm. like sat on the swings and 
cried for a while by myself. I don't think there was anything that had happened or prompted it other than time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that all makes so much sense, right? Like, to hear that news is yeah. really shocking. Yeah. And I don't think our brains and our hearts and our bodies are particularly good at adapting really quickly to news like that. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense that it would take some time to sink in. Right. And, and I, as I'm thinking about it, there might have been... I, I would imagine that as more details about how he had died came out would have helped it feel more real rather mm-hmm. than just he's died it's from a suicide mm-hmm. once those became more clarified and concrete it was i guess almost like easier to build that narrative in my head of a, of a cause and effect rather than this suspended mm-hmm. death like just sort of in isolation anthony i just want to acknowledge that suicide in particular is a is a messy and really difficult conversation to navigate and a particularly tough way to lose somebody. So I'm wondering if you can talk about first uh, what the impact of your uncle's suicide was on your family and your networks, communities. Yeah. So one thing that comes to mind is how it was very clearly a suicide. There really wasn't a question about that. Um, and through a number of different ways, like it was just very obvious that it was something that he had been planning for for months. So I think just like the calculated nature of it is something that's just particularly disturb was particularly disturbing to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he just being able to see how for at least four or five months, how he had been planning it. um, I think that was particularly hard for us to really be able to deal with. It wasn't an impulse of his. He had taken a number of measures so that the, impact that he did have on whoever found him and the, and our family would be minimized, both like financially and emotionally. Yeah, I, I think there's just something that's particularly disturbing that he was looking that far ahead. I don't really know much. It's in, I, I'm kind of processing this actually as I talk about it, but sure. I'm, you know, a lot of times what we're realizing, what I think like the narrative we hear again and again is like that when people die from a suicide they can't really project kind of like see out into the future you know they can't really like see farther out um and or like anticipate the impact that they'll have on people but that's like exactly what he was doing Mm. Um, so i think yeah i think like our our uh seeing that he was able to plan it months in advance and took steps to in some ways minimize the impact on us um it's just really hard i don't really know what i really wanted to say just yeah it's incredibly yeah sorry this is such a rambling answer no no that's great and let me let me follow up with this question or this comment question which is that i think i think what you're saying is really apropos that you know a lot of our narratives about suicide are really negative and 
really harsh and put a lot of judgment and blame on the person who dies. Right. And, and I think it's a lot more complex. I mean, obviously it's more complex than just, um, oh, that person was selfish and, and didn't right. think about the long-term right. effects. Um, so right. especially what you're saying, like those details, it's clear that they were thinking about the impact on others and the long-term effects. And yeah, I think with suicide in particular, it's tricky because often this effect that I, I think that happens a lot when somebody dies is that there's this sort of martyr, angelic, like sainthood effect that gets placed on people, like right. all the positive memories and, oh, they're so perfect and they live their life in a perfect way. And we sort of quickly forget the bad things or the tough things or the struggles. And suicide makes it a little bit complicated to do that because right. even on a spiritual religious level, a lot of people think that suicide is is wrong and um, and has yeah certain implications about where they may be going in the next life. Sure. So sure. so then it gets hard to have that conversation. Like this person was so great, but well, yeah, they committed suicide, so they don't get to go to heaven. I, and anyway, I don't right. There's this whole like kind of like conflict of conflict of like between like a long ingrained value system and the sort of like uh, way in which we typically process a death by only remembering the positives. Right, right, and it's harder to do that in such a negative context. Right. Yeah, and I again, it just. It, it's such a complex and hard thing to navigate these discussions of even if they left a note, we don't know what their intentions were, what their thought process was. And I think this goes back to what you were saying about the disturbing nature of it being that this is a person who for months had thoughts and ideas and a plan developed about how they wanted to end their life. And that meant for those months or longer that the, that was a huge part of their world that they didn't share with anybody. Yeah. Well, well, and what I would even adjust is that he, he, there were, yeah, he did not share it with people in a way that we picked up on. Um, right. But yeah, in the sense that, I mean, he was more than just thinking and planning. He was actually acting and carrying that out. I mean, even just like mm. in going out to lunch with people a lot and mm -hmm. uh, giving things away. Um, so like some of those classic warning signs. Um, but yeah, in, in the sense of like internally and what he's considering, yeah, that none of that was shared with, with others. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, he was essentially saying his goodbyes, it sounds like, and preparing to yeah. leave. Right. And we don't ever want to, you know, if people start being generous and sharing their time with us more, we don't want to assume it's because they're preparing to leave and so right yeah that's that's a really hard thing to navigate so can you tell us a little bit about how you have that conversation with people that maybe didn't know him or that you're telling for the first time or just in general like how do you tell people about the fact that your uncle died or what do you tell them yeah you know it, it does depend on the person both uh how well they knew me or him, but I'd say like a couple things that come to mind are uh, I I've decided to be really upfront in saying that it is a suicide. I avoid using lang the language commit suicide 
Um, mm-hmm. I remember reading, I can't remember where it was, but I remember reading something about, uh, like when you use the word commit, it's like you're saying it's, it's the word commit is usually followed by like something problematic, like mm-hmm. commit murder, commit arson. Interesting. Um, and so like, that's this, uh, subtle way that we can be reinforcing this blame on the person who died and rather than looking at the disease of suicide um mm-hmm. like mental illness or yeah yes, depression or anxiety that is right uh, yeah right um or in his case cr- i think it was you know chronic pain was a big part of it so i, I try to be pretty upfront about that e- even knowing that that can be really hard and even triggering for people mm-hmm. um, yeah so i, I always really uh, am upfront about the fact that he did die from a suicide. Um, but beyond that, the details, I'm never really sure what to share. You know, he, he took these great measures in these different ways to do it how he wanted. And what's challenging about that is, you know, really it's not, I mean, it's not relevant to people who don't know him, those details, but it is really relevant to me because uh, because that's that's the story that's how it happened and like there is emotional impact on me and my family because of those the fact that it was a suicide and you know the, all of the events before during and after it and and so it's just it's just a weird place to be like i don't i in in words like it really isn't relevant to you and it could even be you know, difficult if a person has had a suicidal part of their life in some way to hear the details of, you know, he, this is how he actually did it. So it makes sense for me to not share it with you, but for my own processing, it seems relevant. And, and, and honestly, I just kind of go back and forth. I just, it's kind of inconsistent. Um, mm-hmm. I just sort of muddle through all of those different things and there isn't really a clear direction. And sometimes I share more information with some people than others. And I couldn't really even give you an articulate reason why, just because that's sort of what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, I mean, that's true for any kind of death, right? I mean, there's, and, and, and that's true for so many of our complex conversations in life. You know, we can give people the sort of 10 second headliner version of what happened when we're passing someone on the street. Or, you know, you're having a more in-depth conversation and it's someone you really trust and you have a deep connection with, you can share more of the details. Which is why I think it's, I think it's so important that as a culture we have more space and capacity to talk about death because instead of it being just a glancing blow and just sort of a quick, oh, how did they die? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's awful. Okay, well, yeah, sorry. You know, we can like take the time, have a cup of coffee. And I'm not saying we don't ever do this because this very much does happen in our worlds and our communities, but I just, I'm highlighting why I think it's so important that we take the time to spend, set aside to have these conversations because they are hard, but it's not fair to leave the burden of carrying that grief or the details on the family or the closest people. Right. And I think the more that we can be open to having those discussions with, with less judgment and less fear and just a more openness to, and more curiosity, I think. I mean, 
it's really easy for me to say this because I haven't lost anyone to suicide, but a lot of what comes up for me is a, is like a deep curiosity of what, like, why, why did this person choose this? It must've been so many factors. Yeah. Like we were saying, maybe depression, maybe anxiety, maybe chronic pain, maybe circumstances in life, maybe influences of things they've read or heard that lead to them to this conclusion that this is how I want to go. Mm. And well, who am I to, to judge that, you know, we all make decisions and, um, and I, I guess, you know, especially in, in today's times where we're, we're looking at people, you know, can, can choose to die with death with dignity, you know, they're at the end of their life or they have major chronic illness that they've been battling for years or they're, you know, have Alzheimer's or whatever, there's an opportunity for people to, I'm not advocating one way or another, but, but I do think it's interesting. One potential way to look at, at suicide to some degree is for people to have choice and intentionality with the way that they end their lives. And it sounds like for your uncle, to some degree, that was, he didn't want to be placed burden on people which is, right. a, which is which is ultimately a very generous and thoughtful mode of thinking. It's not. It really is. Yeah. Which really, I mean, just like we were saying before, which really kicks the, like the narrative around suicide, or not even know if it's a narrative, but just that, that common misbelief. That's like a, it's a, a selfish act. Right. Um, and really and, his, like the last thing he did had this piece of generosity in it. Yeah. 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 And that's not to say there aren't, there aren't cases of suicide that are very selfish, but sure. But that there can, that doesn't always have to be the case. And it sounds yeah. like in this situation. And I think the other, the other aspect that I often hear can be really difficult when dealing with and talking, uh, dealing with and talking about suicide is all these questions of what could I have done or yeah. why, how did I not see this to prevent it? And you had kind of mentioned that a little bit, this, none of us really saw his actions as, as like a warning to that happening. So I'm curious right. if you had any of those thoughts specifically. Yeah. I think like in brief, no, he, uh, the, the, the change was definitely subtle. Yeah. Enough yeah. that it didn't feel like for me that I felt that guilt. Um, I don't know if that felt differently for, uh, I was close to him, but I don't know if maybe his siblings felt differently as somebody who, you know, knew him a lot much longer, more peers, more of a peer to him. finding out about his suicide and then you starting to maybe feel those emotions and then I don't know if you could tell me if there was a, a service and how that fit into that timeline I'm just curious about that. I would say it was it was probably that next stage of feelings came with probably about two days after I found out he had died mm -hmm. something like that uh, there wasn't a service uh, he 
he that was he only had a few requests when he died and that was one of them and so he, the one thing he um, instead did is he asked to be cremated and to give the ashes to his godson and then he the, the godson went out into the Puget Sound and poured the ashes into the water uh, because that's what um, that was a meaningful thing for my uncle because mm-hmm. that's what my uncle's grandmother did as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's a pretty common thing just around Tacoma anyway. Like even, even the mm-hmm. county, like if they have unclaimed remains, we'll put the, we'll, we'll bring mm-hmm. a hospice chaplain or a hospital chaplain and um, someone from the county and they'll go out and pour all the unclaimed remains into the sound. So it's a kind of a, uh, yeah, like a common way for wow. people to, yeah. Little do we know when yeah. we're yeah. out there on the sand, yeah. there's all those those ashes out there yeah wow. yeah so yeah so there wasn't any kind of a service uh which was which was hard for a lot of people in my family mm-hmm. and i think that people really um i i personally that that was i mean positive for me that's what he wanted um i mean honestly of anything he actually said he wanted to have like a like an air burial um and i think that was like half serious half not um so like an air burial being where kind of common in um, like a practice that I think Tibetan monks do where Mm. in a place where there's not a lot of dirt to dig a grave Mm -hmm. they instead like leave the body out and the vultures consume it so he used to talk about wanting that I think partly because because I don't know if gruesome, I'll say gruesomeness of it it just was kind of like almost the shock value but I think that was probably more Mm. would have been more meaningful to him than it would have been to have like a church service Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. that was an interesting um just like I was saying, a number of my family members really struggled with the fact that he would rather do something like this very private cremation that no one in the family goes to, or an air burial. And so there were there ended up being a couple of masses that were okay. like in his honor, right. which like done at the request of a family member, and that stirred up a little bit of like you know back and forth because mm-hmm. he didn't want it, but then this person said it really needed to happen. So there you know just mm-hmm. all the family stuff that comes with that. And that brings up such a great question, yeah. which is how much of what we do after somebody dies is for us who exactly. remain. Yeah. You know, depending on what your beliefs are, that person isn't around to appreciate what's happening. Right. So it doesn't necessarily matter what the request is, but then right. of course that feels icky to say. It doesn't matter what they right. said, you know? So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And because for him, uh, his belief was that there wasn't any. Like he there was, he uh, didn't have any sort of a belief of, of an afterlife or he just thought like once he died, the body's just a body. Um, so who cares what you do with or have any service, but it's interesting that he still, despite thinking that still had a preference that nothing happened. Right. right. Even, even knowing that it ultimately would probably be more for, uh, the people who survived him. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And so you were saying you didn't mind that at all, that there was no service, Yeah. but I'm curious, did you do anything privately? Mm. Yeah. To remember him or an honoring or anything? Yeah. That's a good question. I think that, um, if I remember right, I, th- I primarily, just talking to friends, I think was helpful for me just to describe who he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and a few, I would say that a few months later, there, and I think this was a good negotiation. I think this was something that was approached well. There wasn't any kind of service for him, but a few months later, we had some kind of a family reunion where we also extended the invitation to a lot of his high school friends Mm. and said that it was a time to remember Mark. Mm -hmm. And I think that that just the way that it was approached was kind of a nice way where we were saying, 
we recognize that we need to grieve and we also are recognizing your wishes by not having a service, service. especially so shortly afterwards. Yeah. 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 That sounds like yeah. a great middle ground. Yeah. That hits on balancing a, this person had wishes and we respect them, but yeah. also we're human beings. We have to deal with this somehow. Right. And part of that, I mean, I haven't studied this much in depth, but you know, the services and the memorials and the celebrations of life, like those are a really big part of our closure and our ability to grieve as a community and, and, you know, tackle the, the hard questions and fears of dying and death as a community. Yeah. So yeah, both are very important things, I think. So right. that's, that's a cool way to, yeah. to kind of get both. Yeah. So do you have a faith tradition that helps you deal with grieving or elements of a faith tradition or a spirituality? Mm. Uh, no, I don't. Um, I was raised Catholic and haven't been practicing that for a number of years, uh, 10 or 15 years probably. I, and I didn't, in leaving that, you know, I, I think I looked at a couple of different things to see if there was a certain spirituality of a, of a different form that would make sense to me, but I wouldn't say that I ever really ultimately found one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in terms of grieving, uh, it really comes more in the in the shape of acknowledging the my own emotions and the emotions of other people that come up in hearing about a somebody who has passed away mm-hmm. uh, and so it's it happens pretty separately from some kind of a um, faith or spiritual setting mm-hmm. or tradition mm-hmm. so what do you believe about where your uncle mark is yeah i think i mean where mark is right now uh, i would share his beliefs that i don't believe in an afterlife and i think that the most significant thing that remains of him is the memories, his possessions, photographs that we have of him. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell me about a standout memory or mm. is there a funniest memory or a moment that's made you laugh or Sure. Let me think. I don't I don't know if it's funny if it's <laughs> funny, but it but it, but as so much as it is just like a a favorite moment favorite like series of moments is he was always a a he loved to have bonfires mm. and it was really common to uh have bonfires all throughout the summer and they would last they would start at sundown and go a, a very a very short bonfire would be two or three hours and more often they would last until about two or three in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would last five or six hours, you know, however long that is in the summertime. And, and he just lived for that. Um, and so it was actually kind of funny when, you know, when I grew up and to be older and someone would say they wanted to go have a fire outside and it would last for 45 minutes. Just like wasn't, it was, yeah, it's like, well, you hardly even have any coals yet. Like you're not even doing this right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so he, and so we would essentially just sit around the fire and uh, he was, he loved history. Mm-hmm. Uh, never went to call. Uh, he went to, a few, he took a few college classes, but never got a degree. Um, but is, is like, nobody can challenge him on history. He's just incredibly mm-hmm. um, intelligent, especially like early night, uh, 20th century. And so we would sit around the bonfire and he would uh, just tell us stories. He, he used that bonfire setting as this stage for storytelling. Mm. Uh, so that was, that's a pretty, that's probably the m- primary memory that I have of him throughout my life. Yeah. Yeah. A lovely one. Yeah. And I just want to say, I think it's so apt that you were saying that, you know, if he exists anywhere, it's yeah. his memories. Right. 
And just as you're telling that little bit about him, like he really comes alive as a human being. Yeah. Right? In that moment. I feel like that's so common. You know, you're talking about somebody and their loss and it maybe feels like this abstract concept of like, yeah. oh, well, you know, I'm sorry for your loss. But then to say, this was Mark and he loved this and this is who he is as a yeah. person. Yeah. It just brings him right back to life. Right. And especially with someone like Mark, because he was, he had so many idiosyncrasies, like mm-hmm. even with that story of the, bo- of being around the bonfire, you know, everyone sits all around the entire circle, but he had a very specific place that he had to sit just like it was very insistent that he sat in this mm-hmm. place and he had this little stool that he put next to him that he would always have his beer and his whiskey and he would smoke a cigar and he, the fire had to be built the right way. And there's, I mean, there's almost like this funny there's almost like a ritual. There's almost like a ritual to it. Wow, yeah. I didn't actually realize that until right now. It's like for a person who was like very not interested in mm-hmm. faith, it was interesting that he had a, this ritual. Mm-hmm. And and I and I really don't want to, and I don't believe, I, I don't want to say that he was just having this his own faith or spirituality in this other form. I don't want to co-opt that from him. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting to see that one of the things people get from a faith tradition is ritual. Mm-hmm. And he also participated in this ritual, but it was absent of the way that many other people mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great observation. I really like that. Yeah. I really like that. Let me also ask really quickly, when, when did he pass away? Sure. It was, uh, about, it was, um, what are we in 2018? Uh, it was April of 2017. Oh, so really recently. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, a year and a half ago. Okay, so you're still feasibly like in the grieving process. Yeah, I mean, just... even just even just talking about it, like I can I can feel it a little bit. Yeah. What are you yeah. feeling? Uh, I can feel sort of like the undercurrent of sadness, you know, and I could tell that if I told the right story, that I it would well up, and I'd probably be yeah. more emotional. So so yeah, he passed about a year and a half ago, and and you were asking what just describing my grieving process in absence mm-hmm. of a service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I had said earlier that I, the first stages of that was were to share these stories of him. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he was a storyteller. Appropriate that you share, you know, grieve him through storytelling. Uh, another big part of it was going through his belongings, especially mm-hmm. his. Uh, he was a cyclist and built really thin, um, and I'm also a cyclist, and so I got his bike. Oh. Um, and then I also have a really, I, I basically have this a nearly identical body type to him. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I, I got a good num- amount of his clothes. I mean, even just like some of the clothes that I was folding up right before we started, mm-hmm. um, or just clothes, some of his things. Can you pull one out of the closet right now? Or is there one around? Yeah. Um, I'd love to just, you just want to see. Yeah. yeah. So like, um, just off the top of my head, like both of these used to be his. Okay. We've got a green <laughs> turtleneck and a gray one. Yeah. So lots of like earth tones. That was a big thing for him. The other, well, and the funny thing is he was, so he essentially always just worked a few part-time jobs and was incredibly frugal. And so most of the clothes I was going through were, th- were articles of clothing that were 30 years old mm-hmm. and they had, I mean, were just shredded. Mm-hmm. Like shocking that you know borderline indecent exposure just because it was like there were such (laughs) so many holes all over his body so you know going through it is like first you go through the clothes and you have to take out 40 percent of them because they're you you just can't wear clothes that have that many holes in them yeah going yeah going through his clothing and i think that yeah and 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 getting his bike which was probably his most valued possession Mm -hmm. um 
I would, yeah, definitely not like expensive. Again, he was more frugal than he, the, the, his frugalness mm. still carried over in the bike he purchased, but it was a nice bike. Mm. The, the fact that I got his bike and a lot of his clothes, knowing that no one else in the family could do that because no one else was a cyclist and no one else fit his same clothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that was a helpful part of grieving. It was mm-hmm. like, there was like a certain special thing, like a certain yeah. special memory that I got to experience and re-experience and, and do even just earlier today because I get to ride his bike and wear his clothes and nobody else can do that. There's a couple of things I want to say yeah. and talk about. So um, the first of which is, I remember distinctly when my dad died, mm. going through his clothes as well. And there's something extremely personal about that, right? Like we all have clothes that we wear every day and nobody else wears our clothes generally. You know, it's a very private and personal thing. The thing I really remember with my dad was I could smell him, you know, like it's his own, everybody's got their own smell. And that just, I just remember that being really poignant. Like this was my dad's sweater and it still smells like my dad. Wow. I would wear it for a long time. And it was like, it felt like a really connective moment. Yeah. You know, and you're you're kind of putting on that person's shell to some yeah. degree, you know? Yeah. So that's a really beautiful, intimate yeah. way of, of grieving and, like, yeah. connecting with him. And then there's, like, the sort of funnier aspects, right, of, like, why did he have this? Or, right. <laughs> like, right. the things that I would be embarrassed if someone went through my closet. Yeah. be like, why does she have this? Right, right. Um, and it's... That's another aspect of dealing with someone who's passed, especially people that are close with us, is we have to take care of all of these like daily, mundane, trivial things mm. that we all have. We all have a cup full of pencils or a drawer full of like a junk drawer right, and right. like broken chip dishes that they have to go somewhere. Yeah. You know? So we have to either take them to Goodwill or decide to throw them away or decide actually this is important to me and I really want to hang on to it. And that process is can be helpful yeah but also it can be tiring and right. draining and... It's, it's interesting to say think of that like that right because i think there's so much weight and importance around death that we look at mm-hmm. which is true and valid and then um but the reality is like the majority of our lives aren't these monumental moments the majority of our lives are really mundane and so yeah. it makes sense that going through people's belongings are chip dishes and silverware and like yeah. old socks that should have been thrown out but for whatever reason they never were yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and so much of our relationships are built on these smaller moments. You know, like, yes, we have the memory of that one trip or that, like, really special day, but our relationships aren't built on those yeah. moments. Our relationships are built on the t- all the times we made dinner together and right. all the times we did laundry and all right. the, you know, those, right. you know, and the, the rapport in between those moments. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. So, so it sounds like that... You know, you had that with your uncle, which is really special. Yeah. Yeah. He was there for like lots of family gatherings and moments, but also just yeah. around. And yeah. Like, and I think that um, it's that he's, he's, I feel like his whole life is a great example of what you're describing about, you know, he as a, as a very frugal person who didn't have a lot of income, none of my memories of him are of like a big trip or something mm-hmm. that's costly. I mean, maybe they're more memorable, but it was only because of something that happened interpersonally as opposed to like an adventure we went on together. The other thing I wanted to ask that you had mentioned earlier, um, was you had this, so you got his bike 
mm-hmm. which nobody else in the family got or connected with the same way that you did. And I know that you bike a lot, right? Or right. Cycling holds an important yeah. part of your life, which maybe was influenced to some degree by your uncle. Uh, I would say even at, if just at a minimum, I mean, it was around growing up. You yeah. Know, even if it wasn't like I felt moved by it, just right. the fact that it was in the background. Yeah. 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 And you see, and the fact that he biked so much around the whole city, it became a valid form of transportation of like, oh yeah, you could live your life without a car yeah. until you're 40 years old. And did he live here in Portland? No, he lived in okay. Tacoma. Okay. Yeah. He lived oh, in, right. yeah. Yeah. And you lived in Tacoma. Yeah. Yeah. And did you bike in Tacoma as well when you lived there? Or? A little bit. Yeah, I think I did a little bit, but we wouldn't have gone out together okay. at any point. But I'm curious, too, if maybe you, like, biked the same paths mm. he did on the same bike. Yeah. Just... Yeah. You know, I mean, I would imagine so. I mean, right. I think there are some places that are just especially beautiful to bike along, mm-hmm. um, like Ruston Way, Point Defiance. I'm sure that we would have done that um, mm-hmm. unknowingly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But but one memory that does trigger for me mm-hmm. is that after he had died, I got his bike and, um, you know, and his clothes, like we've just established, mm-hmm. and was biking around town and... As I was biking down a road, coming in from the opposite direction was my dad in a car. Mm. And he saw me biking, but because I was built like Mark, dressed like Mark, riding Mark's bike, my dad's first reaction was, oh, what do you know? Uh, Just happened to be crossing paths down the street at the same time as Mark. And then, you know, like a minute later realized, no, Mark died last year. Mm. Um, And so... Yeah, there was, like, the, a resemblance enough mm-hmm. to, like, d- mm-hmm. or just out of a reaction, think mm-hmm. that he was crossing paths with his brother again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, what you had said earlier, maybe, was, like, in these, in telling stories of somebody, you bring them back to life. I think, to some degree, we are the embodiment of the person that mm-hmm. we've lost as well. Mm-hmm. Like, our, you know, because we're shaped by who they were. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, we keep them alive in that that sense as well. Right. I just want to say one more thing, which is that I am not an expert. I'm not here to tell people how to grieve or heal or what death is or isn't. My main goal with this project is simply to create space for us to share our stories about death and dying. And from that collective experience, enable all of us to feel less alone in facing the challenges of grief and loss. Thank you for listening, for being brave and vulnerable, and for your time. Any questions or comments, please get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you and perhaps share your story too. Yeah, so this is a, a, a Surly Steamroller. It is a little bit funny because it doesn't have a like a normal or like the standard gear shift system. It has a, like an internal gear hub on the back. All right. See that? And so, um, and then to change the gears, it's actually just this weird little 
I don't even know if you can see it, but it's just like attached to the end of the handlebar. Okay. And so oh, it's, right. yeah, so each time I take it to a bike shop, it always takes them a second to get oriented to it. Yeah. And can we, yeah. can we run the... There's our little... Love it. Yeah. Like a really heavy duty chain on the bike. Cool. Um, okay. This is where the, I told you there was like a pack that fit on the front oh, of it. Right. And so it was actually kind of funny right when I, um, when I got the bike, I rode it for like a few weeks and I thought that it was like wasn't working very well. Like I thought maybe it was loose because I kept hearing mm. rattling. So I thought maybe there was a piece that was just kind of like, you know, metal on metal moving mm -hmm. around. And then I ended up finding a pocket in this pouch and I, that I hadn't found before. And it was filled with something like $25, but in quarters, <laughs> just like an unreasonable amount of, of loose change. <laughs> Um, so then I, so then I got, I ended up using that to buy like part of the first tune up or like a, an yeah. extra bike light. It was like a specific little, you know, right. the one thing that I got from his, from his, his, uh, his estate or whatever. Right, it was like 20, yeah, my inheritance was like these $25 in a bike and then the $25 <laughs> went to like fix the, like something on it. That's so great. Yeah. I love it. Awesome. Thanks for showing me that. Yeah, sure thing.